We were working with a director who's very well respected, and I had lots of thoughts for them about how to do things. They, thank God, were so sweet about it and pulled me to the side and was like, I know what I'm doing, and you need to back off, or I am going to. My life flashed over my eyes. If this director walks, the instructor will walk. I won't get any instructors ever to come back. Masterclass will not work. Holy shit, I need to check myself. That's David Rogier, the founder and CEO of Masterclass, a learning platform where you get taught by the greats of their industries. It's sort of like having Roger Federer tell you how to hit a forehand, or me telling you how to host a podcast. Well, actually, neither of us are on the platform. It's probably somewhere in between those kind of levels, but you get the idea. This is Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to learn from top founders like David. What's astonishing about his story is this is his first startup. Not many land a smash hit at the first time of asking, because they were valued at $2.75 billion last year, according to CNBC. But more than that, they've managed to build a brand that's attracted A-lister after A-lister, you can learn how to cook from people like Gordon Ramsay, Otto Lenghi, Wolfgang Park, Thomas Keller. I mean, the lineup is a joke. How have they done that? Well, it's the kind of thing that, as a fellow founder, you marvel at and shake your head in disbelief. We all want to be working with people like that. So, what's their secret? Well, it all starts with David's family and the kind of upbringing he had. On my dad's side, his parents met in a concentration camp then moved to Paris. My dad was born in Paris, moved here when he was eight and was a divorced lawyer. And then he retired and became an artist. My mom's family escaped, came to the States. She became a lawyer and then also decided to become an artist. So I was raised by two lawyers who became artists. And then I was raised in part also by my grandmother. So my parents both worked uh, hard, and so I'd often stay with her. I remember in, like, second grade, I went to her house after school, and I was complaining about all the math homework I had, which obviously, like, I didn't because I'm, like, nine years old. And my grandma tells me the story. She says she has a story to tell me, which, like, as, like, a nine-year-old is, like, the last thing you want to hear. And she tells me the story. So she was 16, living in Poland in Krakow, her and her mom go on a family vacation. Dad's going to join, stays home a couple extra days to finish some work. While they're on vacation, Nazis invaded. Uh, they never heard from her dad again. He was killed. She flees to the East Coast, New York. Only job she gets on the factory floor. They're working in the factory. She decides to become a doctor, finds every medical school in the state of New York, applies to over 25 of them, gets a no from every single one. Keeps working in the factory, applies again next year, gets a no from every single one of them. Starts calling the deans of admissions. And asking, why am I not getting in? They all hang up on her except for this one guy who's like, you have three strikes against you. You're a, a woman, an a immigrant, and Jewish. Hangs up the phone. She keeps working at the factory, applies again next year, becomes a doctor, gets into one school. And I remember staring at her, because this is like intense stuff to be hearing from like, just having complained about math homework. And she goes, David, the point I'm trying to make to you is education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. And that message Dan landed hard. Like you talk about the past and having a big impact on you. It was embedded in me from like a very early age that there's evil in the world. Things can be taken from you, but also this optimism that you can impact the world or the world can get better. It's fascinating because in a sense, what you're, what you're reflecting on as well 
is this idea, you know, there's many different um, ways to identify someone's persona, right? Someone's character. And you have all these different facets and they're all labels one way or another. They're all labels and you're kind of stuck with all of them. And so, you know, to the point where you're saying, you know, you can't take away your education. Well, she also couldn't take away her Jewishness or the fact that she was a woman or all the other stigmas. But this was one stigma she could build in a positive light that might actually be able to outshine any kind of prejudice that other people saw in her. And that sort of glow is the thing that broke through and enabled other people to see her for the humanity that she had within her. So that's kind of an amazing insight and lesson that that she gets to pass down to you. Yeah, I think she would say there's certain things that you're born with that you are going to be judged by. So I stutter, right? And that's part of it for me. And so for her being an immigrant and a woman and Jewish, all those things, but then the things that you do in your own life, I think what she was pushing is the material things, those can be taken from you. Your relationships can be taken from you because that's what, I mean, that's what happened, right? But the things that you decide to learn and understand are with you as long as you are alive, right? That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that story with us. Um, and you mentioned your stutter as well. So, you know, how has that impacted you in your early life, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, I mean, I was teased a lot in school. So most people that stutter are boys. Um, it usually gets better after like 13 or 14. I still stutter. It was worse when I was a kid. I was teased. I remember I went to my grandfather once and I, um, I confided in him that I was being teased at school. I remember he's the one who, you know, met my grandmother in a in Auschwitz, right? And uh, so I tell him this, and he gives me a hug, and he goes, so? And I was like, excuse me? He's like, you're gonna let that stop you? And it was like a ton of bricks, like, no. If you can get through that, then I can get through this, right? And, And I think that was a bit of our family, how they deal with difficult stuff. You will get a hug, you're gonna get some love, and then how are you gonna solve it? And I probably wanted more empathy <laughs> at that moment in time, but that's not what I got. And then my parents, how they handled it was so interesting, was they were never going to let that be, they were never going to let me use it as an excuse. So I remember when they would have friends over, their expectation is that I would eat dinner with them and their friends, even as a kid, and I would participate in the in the discussion because I should have something to say and I can't use my speech as a reason to not say it. So I was researching your early career, a bit of a random one for an American working at Tesco. What is that about? <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not a thing in America, is it, Tesco? No. Okay, so it is random. Okay, talk to me how this one came about then. I was in at university. Um, I thought I wanted to go into the, into the political world. And so I interned a lot in politics during school. I came to the realization that that's not what I wanted to do, that a lot of those people were interested not in making the world better, but actually in power, which was like not interesting to me. So when I then tried to get a job after university, it was really hard to get a job because every interview, somebody would be like, why don't you go work at some think tank or why don't you work on a, on a political organization? And I was like, no, like I want to figure out if I can use markets to improve the world a little bit. And the only job I get was in the supply chain world. And then Tesco called me and said, hey, we want to launch a chain of stores in the United States. And our plan is to sell healthy food at affordable prices in low income areas. And I was like, that is awesome. And so I went 
and joined there and it was a mess and chaotic and I loved it. That was my first exposure to like, you know, I don't know if it's entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship on a massive scale. And there's something about that that I really liked. I, I was a young kid and I ended up running a quantitative supply chain team. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need to get stuck on Tesco too much, but you know, after that you did an MBA, right? So you've, I would say, you know, it's interesting because your path to entrepreneurship is um, almost like a, a more textbook one, right? It's, uh, you know, go work inside a lot larger organization, try to understand what that's actually like inside a business and then learn how to do business officially. I mean, I think it was a great education for, I love that I worked inside of a big organization because you saw almost what, if you're successful, what you could look like, but then in the process also, hey, I wanna make sure I change these things or these are things that get in the way of things, right? Um, And you learn on somebody else's dime, which is really helpful. But I will say though, I think, especially at the time when I was getting an MBA, it was a negative thing to be an MBA and to go raise venture capital funds. It wasn't seen as a plus. I mean, in fact, you know, when I would, you know, if it was talking to investors or you know other technical folks, you wouldn't want to say you got an MBA. You'd want to say that you went to grad school because um, MBA was not a favorable designation. Got it. But you enjoyed your MBA. Yes, hundred percent. I learned a tremendous amount. I, I think one of the most valuable things I learned was a what things I'm good at compared to other people and what things I'm not good at that I thought I was good at. And I got exposure to careers and businesses that I never even thought about before. So how did Masterclass come about? Because I will say this, you know, trawling your LinkedIn, as is my job, and trying to do my research, unusual to hit it out the park with your first swing of the bat. And that's certainly what it looks like. And I'm just saying, you know, in having interviewed 45 unicorn founders uh pretty rare that it's a first timer yeah uh i've never like kind of thought that through yeah it's an amazing accomplishment i mean a huge huge congrats but it is fascinating so tell us where the idea for masterclass came from and then we can actually dissect how you managed to get it all right along the way so we can copy yeah <laughs> so i was working in venture capital after school so after school i went and worked for a professor of mine that run that runs a venture capital firm in the bay area and i was working for him investing in startups and I miss building. I don't know, I, I, I wanted to build, I really felt it. And so I went to him and he basically said, why don't you propose something? And I was like, okay, I got a bunch of ideas. Why don't you fund me a little bit? And like, I'll think of more ideas. Kind of half being like, okay, you know, when you, in the beginning, especially when you do these like asks and you're like, okay, there's no way this is gonna happen, but it's worth asking. Like, that's what it kind of felt like. And he said, yeah, so he invested a couple hundred thousand and said, basically, like, go find your your idea. And it sounds awesome. It was terrifying because this is a once in a lifetime shop and I don't want to mess it up. And I don't know how to find a great idea. I've never done this before at any sort of scale. And you don't get any sympathy or empathy from anybody because what, what are you going to say? Hey, yeah, I got some money. I can do whatever I want. Like you aren't going to get a hug, right? So like, and there's no, there aren't any constraints, right? And so I try to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to structurally try to think about this. So I'm going to say, hey, a few different ways. I'm going to think of things, I'm going to think of market trends happening, right? Because you always want to be on the side of a market that is growing. That's way, it's way easier. I'm going to go think of my own needs, right? Or things I really care about. I'm going to go think about needs of other people. So I posted ads on Craigslist, offered to pay people like 20 bucks to talk about their things and their life, right? And needs that they have. And I'm going to prototype and test ideas. And 
honestly, it became a very dark time in my life. I know that's hard to say, but like I, I felt very stuck. And somebody, she gave me a great constraint. And sometimes I think you need a constraint or constraint can help you even be more create, more help spur more creativity. She said, choose something that even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. That was awesome for me because all of a sudden all the ideas go out the window except for education and like health. And so then I started to dive deep into both. And for education, I really started thinking, okay, you have these market trends of people trying to learn online. I love to learn. How come I don't take any online classes, right? Then I started thinking about, I did the on Craigslist again, started talking to people, and you hear people being ripped off on their education. And you know that some of this you knew, but some of this was like even the extracurricular ones they were ripped off on. And yeah, you started talking to friends, started thinking about myself, what I would do, and you start to mock stuff up. Like, what type of classes would I actually take? So one of them, I was like, you know, okay, you're like, okay, people want to learn how to write a screenplay. So you could try to get the best screen write, screenwriting instructor, put them on the web, make a great class. And then I was like, but I wouldn't take that class. I have no interest in writing a screenplay. Well, if Aaron Sorkin taught that class, I'd take that class. I don't ever want to write a screenplay, but I would take that. And you started kind of doing these loops and then started saying, okay, okay, so Aaron Sorkin, it'd be great. But why are the other online classes so, you hate watching them, so boring? And you're like, wait, but what if you can make it look like something I do watch? You can make it look like a movie. All of a sudden, Aaron Sorkin that looks like the high production value of a film, I would take that. Super interesting. Um, but you obviously didn't know Aaron Sorkin at the time, and I'm assuming you didn't start off with a theory of Aaron Sorkin. How did you start off? Like, what was your theory? Like, who were you? Oh, I was thinking, I didn't know Aaron Sorkin. I did think Aaron Sorkin. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because I was trying to figure out who are the, who's somebody who would get me to take something in a field I, I'm not going to do work in. So to me, screenwriting, I will not write a screenplay. I have no interest in writing a screenplay. But if Aaron Sorkin did it, it'd be interesting. So you started, so I literally started thinking and talking to my friends, who are the people that you would actually take a class in no, it's obvious. Like I was interested in entrepreneurship. If Jeff Bezos can teach a class, Elon Musk. Okay, that's a no. That's obvious. But it was about the ones that maybe in areas I'm not as interested in. Got it. What year was this? So I got a little bit of the funding in 2012, and then so this was 2012 in the beginning of 2013. Okay, so talk to me about this. You and Aaron Sorkin. You know, he was I, the West Wing was probably out around then, right? So that was probably his like. Aaron Sorkin was at, that the West Wing was out before and I had watched every episode, right? So like, I was a fan. Got it. So we're talking about um, 2012, like you're, you're in the Bay Area at this point, right? And you're raising money for a startup. So presumably, you know, people are willing to take a punt. Is that your experience? Was it kind of like fast moving? You'd come out of a venture fund, you've got quite an interesting and different idea. You've got also, I think, in terms of storytelling ability, the ability to talk about a problem, use some names to give some good examples. Is that how it went? Mm, no, it was a little, I mean, I did some testing, right? I started mocking stuff up, started doing some surveys and polls, started to put a little more meat on the bones around it. And, you know, we had the market trends going on, then raised a small round from my old boss again. So he put in money. So, you know, if he hadn't put in money to vouch, then it would have been probably impossible, right? Got a few more folks and then started really pushing the idea getting some yeses, and then once got those yeses and honed the idea, then went and raised a, ser- a Series A. So we actually raised a Series A before launch. Oh, wow. Okay. And what was your Series A? Like, how much did you raise? And can you remember what your pitch was then? Was it pretty much the same? Or was it, I'd love to know, like, business model-wise, right? It was, a, you know, we're raising X amount of money because this only works with Aaron Sorkin, etc. So we need real money to tempt these real people to pay them for the real deal or, or not. 
So I think we raised five million approximately that round. No, it wasn't instructors. Instructors in the beginning, I mean, we're up front. We don't have funding. We are we do not have a lot of funding, right? Like this has got to be the love of to teaching, right? That's going to drive you, right? But it was enough to film to get things off the ground. And at that point, you're still testing. What the nice thing is, or the neat, the very neat thing is, our Series A investor. Uh, it was led by Javelin. They actually just shared with me their initial document on us from them. And what we've done is pretty close, actually. This is pretty close. So I, I think it was about saying, hey, how do we get you access to the best people in the world? How do we give you a chance to learn from them? And we're going to do that in a way that you're actually going to want to take their classes. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So five million in the bag and ready to go. Take us through like take us through the journey. Take us through like a snapshot of the journey and then let's get into like little moments, like the hairy moments that come along it. Let's assume, don't know how, but let's just say someone doesn't know what masterclass is. They haven't seen the awesome ads. They don't know Natalie Portman or teach them acting. You know, let's just say that none of that is known. Give us the pitch for masterclass and give us a like sort of snapshot of the story. How much have you raised over what kind of time? Any milestones? So the idea of masterclass is that you actually get a chance to learn from the very best in the world. So you pay an annual fee, and you get access to all these masters. And the masters we're talking about is like Steph Curry on how to shoot a basketball, or it's Gordon Ramsay on cooking, or a Christina Aguilera on singing. So it's the best in the world, and you get a chance to learn from them. 
there's things in there that help you for your job. There's things in there that just help you expand your own mind about how the world works and also some insight about being a successful person. We've raised uh, approximately $500 million to date. Some of the big milestones, there's, you know, there's all different ones, but I think you know, we originally started selling individual classes once we started, you know, but after 12 or 15 classes, we actually gave the option that you buy an annual pass, you get access to everything. Everybody told us that was never going to work, but I actually really believe that we are multi-hyphenate. And so that gave people a chance to be more broad in what they learned. And that was a huge lift for us. Another one is we were part of an SNL skit. We didn't know we were going to be part of an SNL skit, but that was just to thinking of this idea that everybody said wasn't going to work to all of a sudden it being on SNL was like, whoa, right? And I think another milestone for us was it was so hard to get instructors early on. And then when instructors started to come to us, that was like the, the, the strength of the brand was like a also changed how I thought about things too. And by the way, amazing name and URL. Was that something you had to buy later and after a rebrand or you just managed to luck out straight out the gates? I mean, we bought it very early. You know, we bought it before launch. We, it, it was owned by some guy and and. He was great and made the deal with us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, and you know, 500 million raised as well. You know, that is proper media company type money, right? So can you take us through the the last round, um, what you raised and like what the vision was in that in that conversation, right? So where are you taking Masterclass over the next period? So we raised last round about 230 million. Um, the lead investor was Fidelity. Um, also a lot around beforehand. Our vision is to be the school for the rest of your life. And school for the rest of your life, it shouldn't feel like school. If you think about school for the first 20 years of your life or whatever it is, it's like you were required by law to keep your butt in that chair. But the world is changing so fast that you have to stay to learn and you have to keep learning. And But to do that, you have to make it something that you actually want to do, something that you're going to enjoy doing. And so we've really tried and we still have a long way to go, but how do we help you learn in a way that you're going to want to do it on a Thursday night after you're exhausted from work? Love it. Have you, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the School of Life here in London. I'm not, I've heard of it. I'm not really familiar with it, to be honest. Yeah, okay. Seems like a, a very good fit. So there's an author and, I mean, he's amazing teaching a masterclass, author and philosopher Alain de Botton. And he has this thing called the School of Life. And you know, it's, not, it's not even slightly competitive, actually. It's, a, a, it's more a philosophical way of thinking through life's different stages and stuff. But there's some very nice alignment there. And at any rate, I think you'd really enjoy um, some of their courses and the way that they they teach. But, you know, it's a very different, you know, it's, it's him, not an array of thinkers. It's very much his philosophy. So quite different, but, you know, your school for the rest of your life is certainly, um, you know, my dad who didn't go to university always used to say he went to the school of life. So certainly relates to these concepts. Um, I also think it's changed. I think for our parent generation or maybe our grandparent generation, what you learned in school would last you for most of your career. And maybe you'd have to every year take another class or two to stay up to date, but that's no longer the case. I mean, imagine if you weren't in your profession for a year, you would now be a dinosaur. I mean, also just look over the decades, right? Like what, like last decade, social media, now we have Web3. You know, you sleep long enough for, your decade, uh, for a decade and don't actually progress in your career, you miss like an entire like shift change. So it's constantly having to learn on the job. Yeah, and, and I think previously, if you think about it, a lot of what a profession was was becoming world-class at almost one thing. Now I'd argue it's about 
You have to be world-class at adapting and taking new insights and information to being great at that thing, but it changes much more, right? What marketing looked like even a year ago compared to now is completely changing, right? Yeah, totally. And I think that's actually one of the best pitches you could ever have to employees why to work in a startup. It's like, it's irrelevant where you work before or where you work next. Like if you work in a startup, your skill is adapting to change. And that was going to work in any business. doesn't matter what the category is or what the product you make is. It's the adapting to change attitude that is so essential to keep up. 100%. And the speed to it. I mean, there's no rational reason a startup should ever be able to be a big company. A big company has more funding, can attract the best talent. Like, there's no reason they should. But I think it's why they do is because of the speed of iteration, the openness to to change. And actually, very relevant to you, it, honestly, I believe it is 50% narrative. Say, yeah, expand on that. Or can you say more? Yeah, so if a narrative, if a narrative starts to take hold and enough people are believing in it, that works both ways. One, that can be like poison inside your competing organization um, because that can spread. So you can really very intelligently sort of spread the counter position for whatever your competition is. For example, you know, it's very easy for an up and coming Apple to paint Microsoft off as the, as the devil, right? And it's very easy to infect Microsoft employees to think that where they work isn't cool anymore. And so the cool place to work is Apple. But obviously Apple ends up overtaking Microsoft being everything it said Microsoft was bad at, but they just dominated the narrative a lot better. And I think you can see that, not just at that scale, but you can see this, you know, in a whole array of different industries. And we talked specifically just a moment ago, you know, about Web3, um, you know, the reality of the promise of Web3 is so far away from where it is now, but the narrative is fantastic. And if you look at the difference a year ago, the difference was trying to convince people that if you said the words crypto, NFTs or metaverse, people wouldn't think you're a wanker. So they rebrand to Web3 and everyone's like, huh, okay, that's smart. Okay, that's like, a, okay, it's like a new dimension, feels like the future, it probably should learn about this Web3. That's just a narrative shift. And whoever came up with Web3 is uh, is created their own masterclass in navigating how to bring people on a journey rather than fight them. I mean, if, if somebody's listening to this and thinks that to learn how to tell a story or brand, does it have outsized impact on whatever idea? To me, that's crazy. And I think we actually still underestimate it. If you look at Elon Musk, right, who it's hard to argue against, is one of the best entrepreneurs of our our era, right? You might not like some things he does or does. It doesn't matter. He is single-handedly one of the best entrepreneurs of our era, if not the best. But what he's underrated for, I think, to me, is as a marketer. He is brilliant as a marketer. So even somebody like that, who everybody talks about, everybody knows, I still think we underrate that aspect of it. So talk about um, storytelling then. As a founder... And by the way, you know, just um, context, this is my other job. So I'm a full-time founder of a, of a funded startup uh, that's growing in the UK, actually launching in the USA tomorrow, funnily enough, by coincidence. I really strongly believe the great entrepreneurs that break through, they've learned the art of storytelling. And it doesn't mean there aren't other ways to do it because you could be the best software engineer in the world or whatever. But if you look at the majority of the ones that can break through, why? 
Because if you need to get funding, you have to be able to come in and talk to someone about how your ideas on a slide deck will transform into reality. That is nothing more than storytelling. You're making it all up in your head and coming up with the plan, the strategy. All you need is the money. You are narrating a story that doesn't yet have an ending and you are there to create it. Same thing when you're marketing. It's just a story. None of it is true yet. But the belief in the dollars that come in and then the products that get sent and the customer service feedback is the story being unfolded in front of you and no one knows how it all ends. And so I think as long as you can keep up, and this is the trick and the challenge, you know, you look at, there's some people like Jeff Bezos, where it's been one story the entire time um, from start to finish and fair play to him because that is miraculous. Um, which is it's all about the customer and being so completely right the entire time about it from start to finish is amazing. Whereas, of course, you know, a lot of other entrepreneurs, every few years, the world changes. So you have to kind of adapt your narrative and you have to grow up. You have to release new products. You have to move with it. And the art there is still storytelling. It's just adaptability. So whichever way you look at it, I just find it impossible to imagine how you can be a great entrepreneur without learning the art of storytelling. Your last sentence you said, I 100% agree with, right? And I'll, I'll even push it. I think how we think of storytelling or being good at storytelling, I don't think we always think about that right. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be charismatic on a stage. And I think that's what most people think storytelling. That's not storytelling. That can make you more effective at it, and that's a version of storytelling. But some of the most successful entrepreneurs and masters I've ever met aren't always great in front of a stage, but they figure out to adjust to their who they're going to talk to or a different way to tell their story or to play into their strengths. And so storytelling, when it's just about being in front of a room and being good at giving a speech, it's only a fraction of it. Because any venture capitalist, you can think about pitching fundraising, is used to the people that can really charm you but isn't saying anything, right? You've got to be able to tie all the pieces together in a story that people actually believe, right? It's not just charm. 100%. So I guess, you know, the, the relevant question to ask here is, okay, I want to start telling some great stories. Should I be uh, should I be picking up Neil Gaiman or should I be picking up Dan Brown? I would do both, but I would also, I wouldn't stay there. So Hans Zimmer. Love Hans Zimmer. I mean, basically every single time you ever hear anything you like in a movie, you're like, that's Hans Zimmer. And you're like, yep, it was. Exactly. And you talk, I mean, you see in the class and you talk to him, he's like, I'm a storyteller. Like, you might think I'm a composer. What does a composer do? Makes you feel stuff, right? Like it's a storyteller. So he actually talks about, he will think of the score just having read the script. He doesn't even need to watch the film at first because he's just trying to figure out what is the story, right, that you're trying to tell. Okay, so uh, we've got to be great storytellers to be entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about your journey then. So what have been some of the highlights and lowlights? What have you found? And it's worth saying, you know, you've raised $500 million. It's your first time, you know, hit it out of the park. You got... Mariah Carey, you've got Christiana, uh, Christina Aguilera, you've got like all these like all these mega stars on the platform, basically banging down your door to be on there as well. So that's the PR side. That's the stuff that you know your comms team want you to talk about. What's the stuff they don't want you to talk about? What's the what's the personal reality behind building a journey like this? It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. I've gained weight. I've lost friends. I've learned about a level of existential persistent stress that I didn't know was possible. You have difficult conversations that you never imagined. You have a level of stressful events that occur on a daily basis, right? That you know that you, you almost become a little bit 
not numb to, but it just doesn't seem as big of a deal because you've dealt with things that are more stressful than that. And then also the flip side, which I know everybody listening, you know, I sure feel the same way. It's probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. I've learned more than I ever imagined. I get to work with people that I want to work with. But more than that, having impact on people's life in a positive way at scale is simply addicting. Once you've tasted that, you never want to go back. That changes your whole philosophy to life a little bit. I think I've realized there's things along the way that I did were good and there's some that are really bad. Some really dumb stuff I did was I assumed early on, okay, I'm going to get a bunch of smart people around me, advisors. I'm going to ping them every time I have a problem. What quickly happens is you know you get three smart people and you ask them for advice, you get 12 opinions, right? And you get paralyzed and stuck almost, right? And so realizing you got to pick only one or two people that you're going to bring along with you along the way, right? Um, number two is I got a therapist. Holy smokes, is that a brilliant idea? Because what I realized from that, which is so interesting, and you'd find one that you resonate with in the works, but that the stressful things in a, in a startup are usually caused by stressful people. And those same people are people that a therapist is used to working with. Now, usually it's about you know relationship stuff or whatever, but they actually have really good insight about that stuff. They're not going to help you on the business strategies. You have to find somebody else there. But yeah, I think learning, and I still have, I'm not great yet to cope with that, the yin and yang of being the hardest thing, but also something that just like rocks your world. Have you ever found like a, a challenge to find time for yourself? What about family? What about, you, you mentioned friendships. Like how have you built up like, you know, your, like your surroundings, who's around you now, so to speak? I mean, it makes it all harder. I think I'm bad at appreciating things, right? Like I keep thinking about the next thing I have, I stress out about. So um, I surround myself now with, uh, there's a bunch of old friends from childhood. You also make friends from work. And I think the hard part is you got to make sure you don't just talk about work, right? Because it's easy to. But you are in the trenches with these folks and you get to know them and they become people that you rely on, depend on. And this can be folks that work with you, but also could be your board members, your investors and that. But I'm bad at finding personal time. And what about, um, you know, you mentioned investors then. So has it always been good relationships with investors? Like, and if so, how the hell have you managed that? Like no bad investors would be quite impressive, but you know, it's a, you're a human being, so you've got some mistakes, right? Give us some specifics, give us some stories. Yeah, so we're raising around, we got a term sheet from a top firm. We're very lucky about that. One of the things I learned from my venture capital days was like having a dysfunctional board is the end of you. So I am very particular about any board member that joins. I mean, I like back channel and back reference everything I can. So I have some investors that tease me about that because like I'm so. And so I remember this fund, (laughs) there are lots of stories in the back channel. One of these top funds gave me references. I actually asked them for them. You should always do that, but you should also go get your own. And they gave me one of an entrepreneur that they had fired. And I've had that happen once or twice before, but I was like, that is an interesting move. So I, I called the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur hated the investor, hated the investor. And I was like, why would you give that as a reference? That is a good, so that was one. But I had another one, which was top fund and they gave us a term sheet. And in the digging, we found out that what they had done to women how they treated female entrepreneurs was not acceptable to me. 
I went to my board and said, I'm not, I don't want to accept it. Um, I know it's the best price. I don't want it. That was a hard thing to do. The board was very supportive on that. And I remember talking to one of our executives and, you know, same we do, and he was very supportive. He's like, but you got to go tell the head of the fund why you're saying no. Because if not, nothing's going to happen. So I called the head of the fund and I told him why I'm not accepting any money from his fund. I'm sure I will not raise money from them ever in my life. They did not appreciate that conversation, but they made some changes at the firm. They made some changes. I, I think whenever you think about adding a board member, this person's going to be with you for hopefully a very long time. It's easier to get a divorce than it is to part ways with a board member. So you should always be thinking hard about who are the people that you want to work with, right? And and my argument would be, you know, just like we made with the we made a decision on that on the fund that an extra couple percentage points, I'd argue, is not good business. Because in the long run, if you get have a board member that maybe paid a little higher price, but is dysfunctional, is disruptive, is toxic, isn't going to think long-term about your business, but it wants the quick hit, it's actually bad business. So I think good business and being a good person don't always have to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. Talk to me about, you know, you've done some amazing content. Have you made any massive mistakes you can share with us along the way? Like building a business like you have, um, also I'm assuming not really knowing what the hell you're doing to start off with. Give us some horror stories. I mean, <laughs> there's lots of things I did wrong. So there's obviously all the obvious ones that you hire the wrong people and things like that, right? But like some horror stories, <laughs> I hadn't filmed stuff before this. And you know, as an entrepreneur, you can be pretty um, insistent, partly maybe it's your job, but like you have a certain way that you want things done. And I, there were times when I was, we were working with a director who was very big name, very well respected, and I had lots of thoughts for them <laughs> about how to do things. And they, thank God, were so sweet about it and pulled me to the side and was like, so I know what I'm doing and you need to back off or I am going to. And like, it maybe seems small now, but the time was so big. Like my life flashed before my eyes. If this director walks, the instructor will walk. I won't get any instructors ever to come back. Masterclass will not work. Holy shit, I need to check myself. And so, you know, there's someone I was being way too pushy, right? And, and, and pissed people off. There was obviously the ones where like a flood happens on set day before or something like that, right? You know, what do. There's ones where... You know, we had instructors on the site that we decided to take off the site because of allegations. There were instructors that we filmed and we didn't, we actually had instructors to shoot right, so we didn't get what we needed. And so we had the tough choice do we go back and film more to make it good, but it doesn't cost more. And we decided in those cases to always go back and film more, right? But that's a scary thing early on to go back to an instructor that you worked your butt off and it's hard to get them say, hey, we messed up and we didn't capture everything we needed to do. And if we put that out, we don't think people are going to love it. Like, you're afraid for them to be upset. I will say, I remember three times we did that and every single time the instructor was like, well, I want this to be great, so let's go back. But they usually also was like, don't let this, you know, you know why did this happen? <laughs> That's interesting. So like, what did you learn in those experiences, the, the latter ones that is? I've learned that to deal with instructors in the best in the world, just be upfront and honest and direct. One of the myths about, I think, the best in the world, and I think I had this, I expected these best in the world, you're gonna meet these people, they're gonna be really chill and relaxed because they've already achieved the success. 
No, they are like obsessed with improving their craft and, and becoming a, a master. And they often don't feel that they are yet. And so they're actually surprisingly incredibly open to feedback. So if you tell them, hey, this part's working well, this part isn't landing as well, they will jump right in to make it right. You know, a lot of times with the really big names, folks, our first instinct is to hide difficult things or to kiss butt. That is not the way to do it. The way to do it is think of it as one team and you're going to work together to get this thing to work right. And I know that sounds cheesy, you know, really, really obvious, but it wasn't to us. And then it actually worked. And what's the business model? Is it the same for everyone? Are you paying a fee? Are you paying commission? Is it a mix? Do people, do some people have equity? I hope you don't mind me asking these questions, but like I can't do my job properly without inquiring how you actually create the business, like how it actually works. It is a mix and we are we work really hard to be partners with them. But to be honest, these people have can do whatever they want and have a chance to earn money in a thousand different ways. Why they go to masterclass is because they there was somebody in their life that changed their life. It was a mentor to them that taught them and they want to give back. There are easier, faster ways uh, for them to earn money than to do something with masterclass. Which is exactly why I ask, right? Because, you know, I think you've got to tap into, in all, in all parts of life, you know, it's part of storytelling, right? But you're trying to, you know, in the Chris Voss negotiation school, right? You're trying to tap into understanding what motivates them. And if you don't understand that, you're not even going to be close to striking the right deal and you could offer the most amount of money and they never cared about money in the first place. So it's irrelevant. A hundred percent. And I think storytelling early on, when you think about starting the business, you think, who are your customers? You can say, obviously, hey, it's the consumers. No, to us, it was also the instructors. What things do we have to do for them that are going to make them want to teach math class, right? Stuff has to look good. You know, you want them to have full control over what their class is. And so when you think of a marketplace or anything, I think it's a good exercise to think about what are the other, who are all the stakeholders that you have to figure out? One of the best ways we did this early on, and this came from, I think, Roy Bahat at Bloomberg, who's an investor in us, was think of this like a science experiment. And we literally have a document where he wrote the sound, like saying, what are the hypotheses you have? What things do you have to prove or disprove? At what stages? And how are you going to actually do it? And so, like for example, for us at a really high level, what do things have to be true? I have to be able to convince the best in the world to actually teach. Two, I have to make something that's really good, right? And then three, I have to be able to get scale and the amount of people are going to take it. Everything else is noise. Everything else is noise. And we would sequentially think about those. Okay, the first thing is we have to get the instructors, but that's going to take a long time. We can start working on number two. So we can start filming test classes with my mom and dad or whoever, right? And so we really try to think about those things in a, in a science experiment-y kind of way. Love it. Okay. Yeah. So very, um, you know, like I said, you're very uh, systematic and um, authentic entrepreneurship point of view, right? Like trying to understand the barriers that you have to get through and you might not be able to get through all of them. So you lay them out in front of you and try to knock down the ones you actually can at the pace they're likely to go. Yeah. And you have to think of what stuff isn't important that we get bogged down with. So for example, one of the things we got bogged down with early on was like, hey, there are some people we brought on early on that said, hey, if they're going to, you know, that we're going to help us book our instructors or, you know, it could be an enterprise deal or whatever. And usually early on, those people are like, hey, if I'm going to take this risk 
you know, I, I take this risk. I'm successful. I want to be paid. I want to be paid well. And, you know, as a startup, you do not have a lot of cash to pay people well. And so then what you naturally go to is, hey, I'm going to give them a bonus, right, if they're successful. And early on, those are scary because those bonus sizes could be really big, right, for folks. But I would argue early on, it's like if the person signs a huge enterprise deal for you and enterprise is what's important for you, the fact that you paid a little bit more money in the big scheme of things doesn't matter, isn't important because you just signed a big enterprise deal. The thing you got to figure out is if you can sign that enterprise deal. So if you have to pay more for the salesperson to be able to close it, to make that proof point, it's worth it. So don't bog down on fear of like, oh, the bonus of the enterprise deal is 6% and I really want only 4%. It doesn't matter. You need to see if you can sign an enterprise deal or not. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Thank you. Who's been, I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to ask your least favorite guest, uh, guest is because, you know, that would be, Career suicide, I don't anticipate you offering, but give us your top three most enjoyable ones like that you, you have on the platform. There are a few, obviously. The ones right now that I, I'm either re-watching or getting re- really into and really enjoying, there's a class that we released on Black History, free, uh, Love, and Freedom. It's a class I'm most proud of, and I studied history in school this is the history that I was never taught in school and has rethinked how I look at America. And that class is just, is fascinating. The Hans Zimmer class, I go back to all the time. He breaks down some of the theme song, like the theme songs of like Dark Knight. And it's just fascinating how he does it. Recently, I went back and watched some of the class with, by Sarah Blakely. And yeah, she just did that deal and sold. Um, yeah, that's an amazing one. Yeah, yeah. So it's like asking me to pick which child I like best. <laughs> I, do, I do have a question actually, which I wanted to ask earlier. Um, and we're coming towards the end, so um, I won't take up too much more of your time. But before I forget, how do you do the scripting of them actually? Like, because I'm, it sounds like an obvious question, but I suppose knowing what I do know about talent, it's quite challenging, isn't it, to try and get the right mix because um, basically their time is so limited. Um, they want it to be great. You have a style, you have a way, you know that the storytelling needs to be delivered for a classroom, so to speak. They have the way they want to do it. How much back and forth is it? Oh, I mean, a ton. I mean, it takes months to prepare. We actually don't script because uh, we find when you script, it usually is pretty, you you can tell usually, right? It's just, it's so, but we work, I mean, extensively with the instructor. And the instructor works even more than us, so figuring out what they wanted to do and how they want to do it. I mean, it's been all pretty much planned out beforehand. And so, you know, our process is, you know, we kind of see our voice as being the voice of the student, right? So, hey, here's what the world wants to learn from you, right? Um, here's what the world's most interested in. Here's a way that would be interesting to actually do it. So that's the voice that we bring. The instructor starts off by saying, here's all the things I wish I was taught or all the things I think I wish I had known. And then it's a merger of those two documents, if you will. And then filming itself takes how long? Totally depends. I mean, it could be from a couple days to two weeks, just depending on the instructor. And in your studio, we fly around the world to do it? We now, for the first time, have our own do our own space, our own studio space. Up to now, it's been on location or we will rent a studio space. And how does it feel to you as an entrepreneur, like walking into a place and being like, this is Masterclass's studios? I mean, really special. So uh, the place we uh, leased is a place that we filmed a lot at before. So there's a historical part to me. 
I think the more magical is like walking onto set. Like once filming's up and you have a whole crew all dedicated to getting the, you know, basically it ends up on a hard drive, right? So you have like a whole crew and a team back at the office been working for months and months to all end up something on a hard drive. There's something so neat about that. And there's also something like, that's all our work can be capsulated here. And it scares me that somebody will fall or lose it. We obviously back some up and do multiple drives. But set is magical. And I think what makes it magical is all that. But also there are times when an instructor won't even recognize their own mastery or you don't totally appreciate it until something happens on set and then you get goosebumps. You know, when Christina Aguilera can talk about singing and it's fascinating, have her start to sing and break it down and like the whole room just is like, whoa, right? And that's just magical. Okay, like coming towards the end, as I promised, uh, what is in Masterclass's future then? So now you have your studio, but I mean, it's really interesting because in some senses... It feels like it can, in its current guise, it feels like it can only be, you know, it has its limitations in its current guise on the basis of when you talk of true mastery and expertise, you know, it's like the opposite problem to Netflix. Netflix is like, you know, you go on Netflix, you're like, oh, God, it's just another junk show. Like, whatever, I've got some time, I'll watch it. Whereas you go, you know, to the select platform when you're looking for quality, Hard to find the masters, hard to find the experts, you know, they're not in an ongoing supply. So how does the business keep growing and keep finding the right level? I don't think we've even gotten close to reaching that. So we have 150 classes on the platform. Netflix, NEOTT is like, you know, there's talking about 100,000. And there's no way there's only 150 masters in the world, right? I mean, we map it internally. I mean, there's tens of thousands at least, right, um, at that top level. So I think number one area you're going to see us is just expansion of the core offering, right? So this is more classes in more in some more fields. That's number one. Number two is international. Already a third of our sales come from outside the United States. Massive opportunity. We only film in English so far. Uh, we've only released classes in English. We're starting to film not English. Massive opportunity there. In that bucket, like, so if you think the first bucket's core offering, the second bucket is like this, you know, the kind of the same offering, but a more audiences, right? So international. In there, I'd also put enterprise, right? So companies and businesses are using it to train employees because employees actually will take these classes. And then the third bucket to me is new products for new audiences. So, you know, we are pushing hard on things that are even more of a project based. So I make something, you'll be seeing stuff that, hey, if I'm quick on the go or just an audio mode, you know, how do I do it? Um, eventually, we want to do stuff for kids. So those are the three buckets of things. And there's honestly massive opportunity in all of them. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can also imagine, like, you know, the more niches you get into, right, the micro niches where people really, like, there's a million people in that micro niche and they, you know, most people don't know this person's famous, but to that micro niche, they are, like, literally the god of that specialty. Oh, my God, yeah. We did a class, one of the classes I fanboyed out on um, was we did a class with Will Wright, who is the creator of SimCity and The Sims, right? I mean, game design, maybe it's not the biggest mark in the world, but if you're in game design, Will Wright's a legend. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. Okay, and, you know, earlier when we were chatting, you know, I was asking um, sort of casually, you know, what, you know, what, what, like your life as an entrepreneur, you know, the ups and downs, and you're saying, you know, it's been, been, um, the hardest times, but also like the funnest times. Have there been like a, a moment where you thought you were actually having going to have to give up? Like, was it, did it ever come close enough to having to throw in the towel? It was really hard to get the first instructors. 
you know, probably took a year and a half, right, or something like that. I'm trying to remember. But, I mean, it took a while. I mean, everybody told me to stop. Everybody told me to switch ideas. It's a fight in your internal angel and demon, right, of I'm optimistic. I can I can make this happen. This is going to happen. I really believe in it. What if I can do it, right? Then how powerful. The other part is like, nobody else has done it, right? Like, is it really possible? What it cemented for me is, is an understanding that most of our life, we are taught and strive to seek praise. And our society rewards that, encourages that, from grades in school to feedback to promotions. But entrepreneurship is, is basically the rejection of that. Because entrepreneurship basically says, hey, I believe in something that everybody else thinks is impossible. So everybody's going to think my idea that I'm dumb, I'm crazy, I'm not going to get praise until the idea works. I had to learn to alter my thinking. And when people say, oh, people have tried that, it hasn't worked, or that's going to be too hard, not to run away from that, but actually lean into that. You have to chase the impossible because that's where the innovation is. And so I think that cemented that for me. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. As a business model, when everyone at TripAdvisor goes to sleep at night, nobody writes a single line of code, nobody launches a marketing program, we wake up the next day, and our product, the website, is actually better because 100,000 more reviews have landed, more photos, and the info got richer, which we just kind of love that. That was Steve Kalfer, the founder and CEO of TripAdvisor. Can you guess how long TripAdvisor's been going? 22 years. He started it in the year 2000. There aren't many internet businesses like that. So how's Steve done it? And why is he finally stepping down later this year? Well, tune in next week or you'll miss out. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.